0: This is day 217 of our daily Bible reading. We will finish 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and then we will go into 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for giving us fresh blessings, fresh mercy. We have blessings beyond our understanding. You have given us so much grace and compassion in our lives, so much mercy, Lord. We do not deserve it. We are so sinful in your sight, so dirty. yet you know, We thank you for your son who died and rose again and imputed his righteousness to us. Otherwise, you would never see us like this. We thank you, Lord, for what that means. And as we enter into the Lord's passion this week, help us to keep this in mind at the forefront of everything we do and every intention of our heart. We need to understand what you did for us more clearly. And that should change everything in how we conduct ourselves and put some urgency in sharing the gospel. Please bless the reading of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you and even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now, just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door uh, for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes See that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now but he will come when he has opportunity. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. That you also be in subjection, to such men, and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus, and Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand. Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul, well. an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient, enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that, as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, We had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you, so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is preached among you by us, by me, and Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore all through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul, that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was afflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather Forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I write, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes, in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life, and who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, But our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, in letters engraved on stones, came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness, or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of jesus also may be manifested in our body for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for jesus sake so that the life of jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh so death works in us but life in you but having the same spirit of faith according to what is written i believed Therefore I spoke. We also believe. Therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. are eternal. Okay, a rather short reading today, but let's see what we discovered here at the end of First Corinthians and the beginning of Second Corinthians. So the very last chapter of First Corinthians describes how Paul is setting up a collection for the believers in Jerusalem. That he was going to either send with himself or he was going to send with someone trusted by the congregation in Corinth. And Paul reminds them that he wanted to come visit them and he intends to come visit them if the Lord wills it, but it may not happen yet, which is fine because he is going to continue communicating with them through letters. He concludes his letter with some various farewells and greetings to various groups. And at the very end of the chapter, he gives a greeting in his own hand. So as it was last time, the letters that are being sent to these people are dictated by Paul. He's not the one who's actually writing them. And quite frankly, I don't think we know who wrote this one by hand, but it really doesn't matter. But in this particular case, at the very last paragraph here, this was handwritten by Paul himself. And what he says is very interesting. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. That's a very strong word. If you don't love God, you are damned. That's how it would say it in the King James Version, in some of the older versions. Then he says this word, Maranatha. What in the world does that mean? Translated, this means, our Lord come." That's why usually you say "Come, Lord Jesus" in response to Maranatha because that's what it means, and that ends First Corinthians, and then we go into Second Corinthians. Now, what's interesting about this one is that in Chapter Two of Second Corinthians, Paul mentions another letter that he sent them. So we don't know what was in the content of that letter, but in between First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. There was another letter that was sent by Paul to them, and so it's not considered canon in the Bible, I suppose, or we never found it, which is fine because then it's not the inspired Word of God. So technically, though, this would be the third letter to the Corinthians, but this is the second one we have in the Bible because this is the one that the Holy Spirit was involved in. Now, at the beginning of chapter 1, you keep seeing the same word multiple times. Comfort, 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 comfort. Why does he have to talk about comfort so much in this case? What he's talking about here is that being a child of God and working in his service will cause suffering. That is something that is inescapable. But why? Why do we have to suffer so much for the name of Christ? It's because the name of Christ is so reviled in this world. They hate Christ because this is a world of darkness, and the world of darkness belongs to Satan, which is referenced here as being the God of this world. And so in that darkness, any time that you shine some light on the sin and corruption of this world, it makes people very uncomfortable. And They feel like they're backed into a corner, where they start pointing fingers, where they start judging you, calling you out, and then ultimately hunting you down, making your life miserable. That is what is expected of a true child of God, if you are working the way you're supposed to be working. But even though the suffering comes through the world, God does not cause the suffering. He causes comfort. He causes us to be able to Be comforted by him, knowing that we have hope, that he loves us, and that he wants the best for us, and that he gives us peace in our hearts with him and with ourselves. But not only that, but it gives us the capacity to comfort others. And by comforting others, we also are demonstrating the love of God to them. And therefore, we are trusting in God more and more. And so it really helps in our development to comfort other people. Now, Paul is a level higher than many of us are when it comes to suffering. We know that. He went through way more than any of us have ever dealt with. But he identifies his suffering as Christ's suffering. So what he's suffering is intended to encourage others. So that's why many times he says to imitate him because he is imitating Christ. Jesus Christ, as we know, dealt with a lot when he was a man. And in the same way, now that Christ has returned to his throne in heaven, Paul is someone who is sharing in the original burden that Christ had to go through. And this is all happening because he is to be an example for us through his godly conduct. In verse 11, it mentions that The Corinthian people are helping him through prayer. I cannot stress enough how important prayer is. If you recall, throughout the Old Testament, and even some of the New Testament that we've read, nothing great happens unless you pray. How can you get to know the Lord that you claim to love if you never pray? How do you know what he wants for you if you never pray? Prayer is the most underutilized tool that we have as a Christian, and yet it is the most powerful one. Nothing great happens unless we pray. So why don't we use it more often? We can make excuses like I've made before, where, oh, but if I do, then I start falling asleep. That's the one I use all the time in the morning, because I get up early to do this as well as to do my own studies and whatnot. And when I'm getting up this early, I close my eyes for a few minutes, and I start passing out. I'm tired. And I know that that is partly what Satan wants, is for me to be ineffective in my prayer life. But just because I can't pray in the morning doesn't mean that I can't pray at all. Why can't I pray throughout my day? We're going to get to a part of Scripture where it says that we are to pray without ceasing, meaning that we are always in intercessory prayer throughout our day. Our thoughts and our minds are constantly on the Lord. And let's pick a different time to pray. Pick some time that you know that you will be able to focus and that you won't be passing out and falling asleep. So we can make excuses all we want, but there will be opportunities to pray, and we need to use them. That is one step in growth, as well as receiving this comfort that he's talking about. Then we see in verse 16, that Paul intended to visit them twice, but his plans were changed because of the will of God. Some of his opponents called him vacillating or unspiritual because he is according to the flesh, so because he can't keep his promises. And he denies all this, and he defends himself, and he gives reasons why he is not able to meet with them. So in verse 17, he says something interesting. Did I change my plans because I couldn't make up my mind, or was it something else? Am I someone like a sinner who says yes and no at the same time, and therefore I'm lying? He did promise to go to Corinth, but the Lord had other plans for him, and so he's not able to keep it yet. That doesn't mean he's never going to go back, it's just not yet. But his current plans are to make it back to Corinth, and so he lays it out for us here that he wants to go from Ephesus to Troas to Macedonia and then to Corinth. So he wants to go, but God has been leading him elsewhere. And then in verse 20, he reminds us that even though we don't always keep our promises, God always keeps his promises. All of his promises in the Bible are always going to be yes. There's not a single promise written, even in the Old Testament, that will not be fulfilled. Every promise he's ever made is still in effect. We need to remember that, because we tend to doubt God, or because nothing happens immediately in our time frame, then we don't think God is faithful. But we are so short-sighted. Chapter 2 has various information about stuff that happened in the Corinthian church that he was addressing. And then he mentions Titus. And yes, this is the same Titus that is referenced in Paul's letter to Titus. So we'll, we'll get to that eventually. But then he's talking about victory in his ministry. He's praising God for all the wonderful things he's been able to accomplish through Christ. And then he mentions a fragrance or an aroma depending on your translation what is the significance of this sweet aroma so if you recall from the old testament any time that god would tell us to sacrifice a particular animal or grain offering so on and so forth to satisfy a sin or a goodwill offering they would be a sweet aroma to the lord a soothing aroma They were pleasant to him, because they were in obedience to what he commanded. And perhaps he likes the smell of it, who knows? But ultimately, this is the same kind of idea that he's giving us here, is that God is the sweet aroma, and the gospel is the fulfillment of this sweet aroma. But to some, it is a different kind of aroma, because in the Roman world, Incense was burned as well, but this kind of incense was burned in like a Roman parade, for example. And so this comparison, more simply put, is trying to illustrate the difference between life and death in the gospel. And what I mean is, for those that believe in the gospel, it is a soothing aroma. But for those that do not believe the gospel, it is an unpleasant aroma. And so it depends on how you receive it. And, and we know that because God is holy and God is correct, God is faithful, that his aroma is soothing and pleasant. We are partakers of that very thing, so we understand. But he also mentions in verse 17 that he is not like many people who peddle the word of God. This is something that is very sad. What does he mean by peddling the Word of God? He is selling the gospel for profit. Paul doesn't do that, and he always preaches free of charge. And he's mentioned that many times so far, right? That when he's with his people, that he would perform his work to pay his own way so that his ministry would not be hindered by owing people money. And not only that, but he also wanted to set an example for these people how to be self-sufficient and self-reliant rather than have to depend on people. So when he would go and establish churches and preach in one particular place, he would work during the day making tents, and then he would live off of that money while he's performing his ministry with the rest of his time. But some people charge for the Word of God, and usually those people are false teachers. So he is making it clear that he is not a false teacher. He would never want to put himself in that category. Therefore, he doesn't peddle the word of God. And that really cheapens the gospel, that there's a price to it. When in reality, it is now the free gift, but also the price had already been paid, and it was a much greater cost than we could ever pay. So it would be insulting to the word of God to charge for it. Chapter three focuses mostly on the difference between the old covenant, which is the law of Moses, and the new covenant, which is in Jesus Christ. How the law brought about death, but the new covenant of Jesus Christ brings about life. And that's mostly what's being talked about here. And then he uses the comparison as well of Moses when he would go be in the presence of God. He would have radiance in his face. His face was shining and he had to wear a veil over it to not freak people out. But in this case, what he's showing us is that there used to be a veil because of the Old Covenant. We could not go to God's direct glory because of the law, and also because of the hardening of the hearts of the people. But when Jesus Christ died, like we read in the Gospel of Matthew, when he died on that cross, the veil in the temple split from top to bottom forever. The veil has been removed because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, that's why he says in verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is freedom. We are free from the law. In chapter 4, he describes how the ministry of Jesus Christ is a supernatural one what do the ungodly do with the Word of God? It says they walk in craftiness, and they adulterate the Word of God. And God has made it very clear in multiple places that you do not add or take away his words, lest there be some sort of greater judgment. But instead, we speak in truth. And what's very interesting is that sometimes the gospel is veiled. It's only veiled to those who are perishing, the ones that are unsaved, and are not designated for eternal life. And they are perishing because the God of this world has blinded their minds. So Satan is actively trying to stifle and silence the Word of God. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us. He is our mortal enemy. So this is old news to us, right? We know that he is constantly working to stifle the gospel. And not only in the lives of the unbelievers, but sometimes in us, too. That's when those temptations come. That's when the oppression comes. That's when material things happen to us, kind of like how when he was doing that to Job. When Job was a righteous man, he caused his family to be killed, he lost all his possessions, he was stricken with sickness in order to get him to renounce God and to curse him. He does that to us too today. Some of it is demonic oppression. Some of it is just being in the world, right? But some of it is demonic attack. That's why we need to constantly be in God's presence and rely on His strength because we try to do it on our own. They will get us to fall away every time. In verse 7, he mentions that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What is this treasure? It's the gospel. The gospel is the treasure. And what are the earthen vessels? Us. We are the earthen vessels. We were made from the dust of the ground. Therefore, our human bodies, which are as frail and fragile as can be, are the vessels of the gospel. So, Paul makes it clear that this power belongs to God, it doesn't belong to any man or any leader. In verse 16, Paul makes a fascinating point. He doesn't lose heart because we know that we're dying slowly every second. We're getting closer to death every second. The world is falling apart. Our bodies are withering and decaying due to age or whatever, but the efforts that we make in Christ are not in vain. We will be afflicted for a short time on this planet, but then afterwards we will be in such great glory that it was all worth it. This is definitely an investment while we are on earth. But when we get to heaven, we will see a high yield return on our investment. And that's the kind of weight of glory that he's referring to here in verse 17. We need to look at the things that are not seen, the things above. That's why he says elsewhere that we should be focused on the things above, focused on the heavenly realms, the things of God, not on the things of earth, because the things of earth are passing away. They are temporal, and they are useless to us in the long term. That's why we need to give everything that we have to God, and it will not only benefit us now, but it will benefit us in eternity. And with that, that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.